Today on Inside Politics, there are growing fears of a widening war in the Middle East after President Biden orders retaliatory airstrikes on an Iranian-backed group in Iraq. Plus, chaos at the border. America's top diplomat is heading to Mexico, where thousands of migrants are making the trek to an already overwhelmed U.S. border. Local law enforcement are begging for help to deal with the ongoing surge. And lashing out. Donald Trump spent Christmas Day attacking his self-proclaimed enemies, including President Biden, Special Counsel Jack Smith. His Christmas message to them and others, quote, rot in hell. I'm Phil Mattingly in today for Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. And we start today with the 2024 race where Republican candidates are gearing up for their final campaign push in Iowa. Just 20 days, less than three weeks until the caucuses, Trump's rivals will be crisscrossing the state trying to chip away at his frontrunner status. CNN's Kristen Holmes is covering all the latest developments. Kristen, who can we expect to see back in Iowa this week? How are they going to make a difference in what has been a race that Trump has led by far and away over the course of the last several months? Well, Phil, that's the question that all of them have been trying to answer since they got into the race. How do you get rid of Donald Trump or how do you at least chip away at that large margin? Now, as for who's on the campaign trail today, it is dark. Tomorrow, Vivek Ramaswamy will be back in Iowa. And later in the week, we will see Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump, the front runner, is not expected to be back in the state until the 5th of January, so a week from Friday. And it's not that surprising. He has been outpaced by all of his rivals and his lead is is so large right now, he doesn't feel the need to have to compete every single day. Now, what I am told by Trump advisors, the biggest thing they're focusing on now is how wide they can make that margin at the end when he takes, if he takes Iowa, essentially wanting to set the tone for the rest of the primary caucus season. But if you looked at Donald Trump's social media over Christmas, Christmas Eve, you wouldn't know that things are going so well for him in Iowa on the campaign trail. Most of what he did was spend his time ranting away. Usually what we see from world leaders is messages of peace, particularly in a time of war, but not from Donald Trump. Instead, we saw him lashing out at Jack Smith, going after Joe Biden, uh, talking about how these cases are election interference and purely political. He even went after uh, the Supreme Court in Colorado about that decision to take him off of the ballot because of the 14th Amendment. A lot of this here really showing what the next year is likely to look like. We are entering an even more divisive time in politics. If Donald Trump is the nominee, should look forward, or I don't know if look forward is the right term, but be expecting to see more of these kinds of personal attacks. It's how Donald Trump campaigns, and particularly, Phil, when it comes to the primaries and caucuses, he's not getting any real political pressure to stop this kind of rhetoric. In fact, he's seeing his polls rise in various areas. So right now, you're not going to see him back away from any of this rhetoric. Yeah, very, if it's not broke, don't try and fix it. Kristen Holmes, thanks so much for your reporting. We want to bring in our great political panel uh, on this fine Tuesday afternoon, CNN's Eva McKen, The Washington Post's Isaac Arnstorf, and CNN political commentator S.C. Cup. S.C., I want to start with you because when you go through the social media posts on Truth Social, it's like a Mad Libs of, you know, things, grievances and people that the former president doesn't like. Uh, and it's a really interesting contrast of may they rot in hell. But again, Merry Christmas, which is not how I ended most of my holiday cards. I think my question is, I think Kristen like nails the key point here, which is there are no repercussions for this if you're the former president running in a primary. Does that change in a general? Right. That's the key. That's the key part, Phil. In a primary, um, 
this is boosting him, right? Keeping his base rabid, angry on his behalf, playing the victim. This is all really useful for him. And it's it's been helpful in his primary. When we switch to a general, however, you have to wonder if the appetite for that kind of rhetoric and division is as big or tolerant as it was in 2016. We know it had waned in 2020. Um, I think Trump is hoping to, to replay the 2016 playbook, but we're hearing from a lot of congressional Republicans, especially the vulnerable ones going home to districts that Biden won. And they're hearing from their constituents that they are over this, that they really are past this and they want to move on. So I, I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword and we'll have to see if he can make that turn. It would be a, it would be a hard one. Yeah, Eva, it's so striking the number of Republicans you can talk to both on Capitol Hill, but also on the campaign trail who say, look, love Trump policies, really don't want to do the chaos thing all over again. And Lindsey Graham, who is as ardent a supporter as you're going to get uh, of the former president, saying this. Take a listen. He's not the first politician to claim to have uh, been denied a, a fair election. But here's what I would say. I accept the election results of 2020. I'm worried about 2024. If President Trump puts a vision out, improving security and prosperity for Americans, he will win. If he looks back, I think he will lose. Do you think that resonates inside the campaign at all, Eva? I think it does to some degree. What I'm curious to see this week as we see these candidates really get back on the campaign trail in the closing weeks before Iowa is if we see sharper attacks from Governor Haley from Governor DeSantis. We saw a little bit of this from Governor DeSantis. He's now telling voters in Iowa, in New Hampshire, that Trump would really be a high risk choice. When I was with Nikki Haley in Iowa a few weeks ago, she got a, a question from a voter about Trump and she kind of sidestepped it and she said that she didn't really want to get into a personal tit for tat with him. But I'm wondering if those attacks become sharper, because that is really his greatest vulnerability, the chaos that he inspires. And you hear that time and time again from voters uh, that they like his policies, but uh, some of them, at least some of them I speak to are, are ready for a new chapter. Isaac, Eva makes a really great point. It's going to be fascinating to watch as this kind of like three week final sprint to the caucuses. And no one is going to have the spotlight shining brighter on them than Ron DeSantis, who's made very clear his campaign, his super PAC, his whole operation, that Iowa was kind of their ball game. And that hasn't worked out great. In fact, the New York Times had a pretty devastating, I don't want to call it a postmortem, I guess pre-mortem <laughs> story in which they quote uh, one longtime pollster and close advisor saying at this point they're, they need to, quote, make the patient comfortable. That's the part of the campaign that they're in right now. He, that advisor then uh, denied ever saying that, but but in terms of where things stand for the DeSantis campaign at this critical moment in the lead up to Iowa, what's your read on things? Yeah, an absolutely devastating quote, and just you know, by any objective measure, just not the situation that you want to find your campaign to be in with staff leaving, uh, clear signs that their uh, that money is a big concern, and having having staked it all on Iowa and the polls just constantly going in the wrong direction. It's hard to see uh, unless DeSantis really pulls a rabbit out of his hat and and some somehow not just has a strong second, but really uh, pulls something incredible off. It's it's hard to see where the campaign goes from there. Essie, to that point, as people try and think through this, you know, you think if you're not necessarily paying super close attention right now, look, if you don't win, 
then it doesn't necessarily matter. But that's not the Nikki Haley pathway, right? It, it, Nikki Haley's looking for a stronger than expected performance in Iowa to kind of boomerang her into New Hampshire, where she does way better than anybody initially expected a couple months ago, and then ride that momentum into South Carolina. What is a Nikki Haley looking for in Iowa now that she's got the Americans for Prosperity endorsement? She's got their ground operation. She's going up with ads. They're going up with ads. What does she need in Iowa? Uh, It's all the M word. She needs the momentum. And she's really been the only candidate other than Trump to have a forward moving momentum over the past few months, as you mentioned, gaining really important endorsements and and more more campaign money, fundraising, um, surrogate staff. She's been moving in the right direction. She wants to keep that up. She doesn't have to, obviously, she doesn't have to win in Iowa, but moving toward New Hampshire and South Carolina, she has to have uh, that forward momentum continuing. Unlike Ron DeSantis, she is not staked at all on Iowa. So I think she can survive um, with a good finish, but she really wants to keep, keep moving forward. She wants those good headlines. Ron DeSantis has bad headlines right now. Um, and no other candidate is really making headlines. So she wants to keep those good headlines going as she moves through the caucuses and first primaries. Eva, I love Essie's point about, you know, momentum is so important. I think it's so central to kind of the Haley theory of the case here. What is the plan after New Hampshire? Say things go well in Iowa, things go perfectly in New Hampshire. Then what for the Haley campaign? Well, it sounds like they're going to continue to hone in on this electability argument that she is uniquely positioned to bring in uh, people that otherwise would not engage with Republicans. And she's able to do that while remaining firmly conservative. That's what I hear from her on the campaign trail. I don't know how successful that argument will be, uh, especially in some of these more ruby red states. But that certainly seems to, to be the plan for now. Isaac, when you kind of watch how the DeSantis campaign has operated, and I say campaign and I mean the kind of constellation of operations, uh, they're a little bit, I think Frankenstein was the word that was used in a couple of the stories in terms of how they've all been put together. Um, Is there a world in which you see them continuing on into New Hampshire, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, or is it the sense of things right now that Iowa's probably going to be about it? Well, it's the old saying that that campaigns don't end, they run out of money. And if you're a donor looking at the DeSantis campaign, uh, you know, this campaign, if you if you look at the campaign and the super PAC and the outside groups, it's like two hundred million dollars that have been lit on fire to see his poll numbers collapse. So why are you thinking of throwing good money after bad? That's the challenge that the DeSantis campaign has to make to to go back to to anyone to ask for more money to keep going. So again, you know, unless he, he really pulls off something amazing that shows that that money uh, that money bought something, uh, you know, what's the what's the point of of spending more to just limp along in state after state? Now Haley, on the other hand. Uh, you know, you've got that momentum, you you know, you've got a different investment case. The challenge that she has after New Hampshire is Nevada, uh, a caucus, there's a caucus and a primary. The caucus is the one that counts and she's not competing in it. And then you've got South Carolina, her home state, which in some ways is Trump's strongest state out of all the early nominating contests. uh, And everyone knows the risk of losing your own home state. Right. Yeah, it's gonna. It's a fascinating couple of weeks ahead. Um, Eva, I don't think you've gotten a break in the last six months. You're definitely not going to get one in the next eleven. Um, Isaac, great work in the Washington Post. Essie, I deeply, deeply appreciate 
uh, whenever you kind of walk through what you're thinking. Guys, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And coming up, escalation in the Middle East. The U.S. launching airstrikes on an Iranian-backed militant group in Iraq that injured three U.S. troops. We're going to go live to the Pentagon for details. Stay with us. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We turn now to the Middle East and fears of a widening war that's already drawing in the U.S. military. President Biden ordered airstrikes yesterday against an Iranian-backed militant group in Iraq, hours after they took credit for a drone attack that wounded U.S. troops. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is live for us at the Pentagon. Orrin, starting with these strikes, what are you hearing about how they came to be, what they're supposed to accomplish here? Phil, this begins early Monday morning when a drone attack, a one-way drone or a suicide drone, hit U.S. forces in Erbil, Iraq, injuring three U.S. service members, including one critically. President Joe Biden was briefed on the attack in U.S. service members and was then given options on how to respond. Kataib Hezbollah, an Iranian proxy in Iraq, claimed responsibility for the attack, and that is where the U.S. focused and targeted its response, hitting, according to U.S. Central Command, three facilities used uh, for drones for Kataib Hezbollah. U.S. Central Command says there were no civilians affected in the strikes, according to a preliminary assessment, but likely a number of Kataib Hezbollah militants were killed in the strike. The U.S. said, and this comes from the National Security Council, the president places no higher priority than the protection of American personnel serving in harm's way. The United States will act at a time and in a manner of our choosing should these attacks continue. To this point, we have seen about 100 attacks against U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria over the course of the past two months or so. But when the U.S. has chosen to respond, many of those responses have been in Syria. Last month, they did respond in Iraq, but it is quite rare that they target Iraq. The U.S. forces are in Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government, and to put it mildly, the Iraqi government was not happy about the U.S. acting there, calling it a hostile act that infringes upon Iraq's sovereignty. So the U.S. having to draw a very fine line here, obviously trying to protect its own forces and trying to make sure this doesn't escalate while also trying not to escalate uh, or not to anger the host country here, Phil. Yeah, Orrin, I, I want to pull up some video right now. We're seeing some of the aftermath, uh, just getting in video, of the aftermath of these strikes uh, that the U.S. conducted in Iraq. And, and as you know, this is a very complex situation, not only because they're kind of in the back and forth of proportionality we've seen over the course of the last several weeks, but also fears of undercutting uh, the Iraqi government. We've already heard from them and their concern uh, and rage to some degree about these strikes as they took place. I'm also struck, Oren, and this is not connecting the two necessarily, but from a bigger picture perspective, 
This coming on the heels of what is believed to be an Israeli strike in Syria that took out a very high-ranking IRGC commander. What do we know about that? Correct. The U.S. has tried to draw a line between the ongoing war in Gaza and the rest of that Middle East, but everything we're talking about right now is an indication that the U.S. has been unsuccessful in trying to separate all these regional conflicts and areas. Uh, just in the, uh, in the course of the past 24 or 48 hours, a strike attributed to Israel in Syria killed a senior commander of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Syed Razi Mousavi. Uh, Iran responding very forcefully, effectively saying that Tel Aviv will have to wait for a tough countdown and can expect a response here. So Iran vowing a response uh, for the killing of one of their senior IRGC commanders. It's worth noting here, Phil, that when it comes to Iran's perspective on the Middle East, they don't really see much of a difference between Israel and U.S. forces there. So even if they promise a response against Israel, it may very well be that that response comes either through proxies uh, in Yemen or elsewhere against U.S. forces there, simply because of the link that Iran sees there between the U.S. and Israel. All right, Orrin Lieberman live for us at the Pentagon. Thank you very much. I want to turn now to the New York Times national security reporter, David Sanger. And David, I want to start where, where Orrin and I left off, because it's striking if you look at the photos that we were showing uh, of the Iranian commander that was killed, you see a picture of him sitting with Qasem Soleimani, who was killed by a U.S. drone strike back in 2020 from the Trump administration. We were talking about this uh, this morning. This is not a, a rank-and-file uh, individual here. This is a high-ranking uh, officer within the IRGC. The what happens next, I think, is the biggest question on everybody's mind. What are you hearing? Well, Suleimani, as you point out, who, who was uh, killed in, in January of 2020, ran the Quds Force, which is the most elite so, subsection of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Force. And Musavi was, was one of his deputies. And from the best that we can tell, was running some of the proxy forces that were operating uh, in Syria. So as you say, th this was not just your, your ordinary uh, commander. Um, there's a common thread here, Phil, uh, across what's happening in Syria, what we're seeing happen with this attack on the American forces in Erbil in, in Iraq, which uh, uh, led to those three injuries, one of them apparently pretty critical, um, and what you're seeing happen in the Red Sea. And that is, there is some degree of Iranian inspiration or coordination in each of these cases. Now, the Biden administration has made public a little bit of their intelligence on this. They've been uh, a little bit slow on some of the other. But it raises a very hard question for President Biden, because as you know, he's trying to avoid escalation with Iran that would open up another front at a moment that Israel is so wrapped up in Gaza. You make that point. It's so interesting. I want to bring the video back up that we just got in of uh, the results of the U.S. strike uh, in Iraq. We're seeing some of these pictures right now. And, and it has been all about proportionality. And it's been a back and forth kind of through that lens. Uh, and it has not included attacking Houthi rebels in Yemen. Uh, it has mostly been limited to proxy groups in uh, Syria and Iraq. It, what triggers the U.S. to go further uh, in your reporting, David? So... The main thing seems to be, Phil, U.S. injuries, you know, and uh, as you heard from Oren, there have been about 100 attacks, but uh, the one yesterday was the first one where we saw serious injuries. 
Now, some of President Biden's critics, mostly uh, Republicans who've been making this case for a number of weeks, say he isn't acting tough enough, he isn't creating deterrence here and so forth. But they don't have to weigh the escalation costs. And the escalation cost is a very difficult thing to understand. We just don't know how much the Iranians would push it. You know, it's it's really a very hard calculus because when this administration came in, they tried to separate out their primary problem with Iran, which was the nuclear program, with what seemed like a secondary problem with uh, Iran, which is, of course, their support of these proxy groups, Hamas uh, and Hezbollah included. Um, now, both of those are running pretty full steam ahead. There's a new report circulating inside the International Atomic Energy Agency that suggests that the Iranians, after uh, slowing down on their nuclear enrichment, are speeding up again. Obviously, they're, they are encouraging, if not coordinating, some of these attacks. So this is going to be a bigger and bigger problem for President Biden to handle in the new year. Yeah, the, the convergence of seemingly disparate or loosely connected variables all into one at this moment in time creates a very complex problem. At the same time, obviously, the U.S. working with his ally in Israel, Ron Dermer, is expected to meet with top administration officials today on that front. We'll keep you posted on that as it moves forward. David Sanger, always appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Great to be with you, Phil. And coming up, border chaos. Nearly 10,000 migrants are illegally crossing the southern border every single day, and law enforcement officials say they just don't have the manpower to respond. What happens next? Stay with us. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Today, a caravan made up of thousands of migrants is headed north to the U.S.-Mexico border. Authorities at the southern border are already struggling to deal with an unprecedented surge of migrants. And CNN is just now learning more than 11,000 people are waiting in shelters on the Mexican side of the border, hoping to get into the U.S. That's according to community leaders. The challenge is being acutely felt in Eagle Pass, a city in Texas on the U.S.-Mexico border. And joining me now is CNN's Rosa Flores. Rosa, it was your reporting. You've been in Eagle Pass. What is the latest on the southern border and what are the conditions for people that are arriving there? Well, you know, Phil, the situation here in Eagle Pass has definitely improved. I spoke to a senior CBP official who says that while the picture behind me it looks better than it did last week, because last week there were thousands of migrants who were waiting in line to be transported to immigration processing, that the agency is not out of the woods yet. There are still smuggling organizations that are pushing migrants to cross illegally into the United States. Now, the Biden administration has been surging resources. They have been uh, suspending operations at several ports of entry in several states to redirect those resources. But here's the bottom line of what the American people need to know whenever there's a surge on the U.S. southern border. This creates gaps in border security. Why? Because while Border Patrol agents are very busy processing migrants, like the ones that you see behind me, we saw a group just just arrive earlier. And these are moms and dads turning themselves into immigration authorities. The gaps in border security are created because these Border Patrol agents who are normally patrolling other parts of the southern border can't do that. They are instead doing this, which you're seeing behind me. And from talking to U.S. Border Patrol Chief Jason Owens, he says that that's what the cartels capitalize on. That's what smugglers do. They use these gaps in border security, Phil, to then redirect drugs and criminals through the southern border uh, and, 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 and have that flow enter illicitly while Border Patrol is busy doing what you see behind me. Phil. Rosa, it's obviously kind of a triage situation, to use 
a term that probably doesn't quite fit, but are there mitigation steps the administration is taking that they feel are actually working on the ground? You know, we do see that decompression works. And what that means is that while Eagle Pass is saturated, over capacity, Border Patrol agents transfer these migrants to other areas along the border, to the Rio Grande uh, Valley, to Laredo, to Del Rio, to make sure that those migrants are processed swiftly. But what the Biden administration is also trying to do is to impose legal consequences for the illegal entry into the United States. And what we're talking about there is the processing of migrants under Title VIII, enhanced uh, expedited removal, deportations. And DHS reports that since May, um, about 445,000 migrants have been removed or returned. That number is big and it's significant. It's more than the total number of individuals who were removed in fiscal year 2019. That's when President Trump uh, was in office. But Phil, here's the key. Whenever there is a border surge, it's very difficult for any administration to impose legal consequences because that takes time and that tests the border holding infrastructure on the U.S. southern border. And right now, we know that it has been backed up because of the ongoing surge that has been going on for weeks. Phil. All right, Rosa Flores live for us on the U.S.-Mexico border. I want to turn now to the Biden administration's part of it in Washington. Joining me now is CNN's Priscilla Alvarez from the White House. You know, Priscilla, you cover this as closely or closer than anyone I know. You've basically uh, been the one to explain everything to me about what's been going on uh, at the border for the better part of several years now. When you talk to administration officials in Washington, in that building behind you, do they have a sense of anything they can do in the near term to deal with this? Well, a lot of it, Phil, is shoring up resources. That's sort of the patchwork process that they go through. But then in addition to that, it's looking for help from the regional partners. That has been the through line over the course of the Biden administration is looking to the partners to the south to help stem the flow of migrants, which come from multiple countries. There was a time where we were only talking about migrants coming from Guatemala, uh, Honduras, and El Salvador. Not anymore. They come from as far as Venezuela, Colombia, and that creates a lot of difficulty for this administration. So last week, President Biden called the Mexican president to get more help and place pressure on our neighbor. But in addition to that, senior U.S. officials are going to be traveling there tomorrow to get more commitments. And of course, this is a political vulnerability for President Biden going into 2024. Republicans have repeatedly seized on this issue and slammed the administration over its handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. And polls show that Americans are also have their doubts about the way that the uh, president is handling this with 69 percent disapproving of his handling of immigration and only 26 percent approving. Now, what the administration has been contending with is record migration across the Western Hemisphere. It only got worse after the coronavirus pandemic. And there is a very outdated immigration system in place that is just not prepared to absorb the flow of people that are crossing the U.S. southern border. And the president has said that he's willing to compromise on border policy changes and work with Republicans. And that came as Republicans are now uh, sort of keeping the administration from passing its supplemental request that it wants to see for Ukraine aid and for Israel aid. So this really vexing domestic issue is now at the center of the president's foreign policy agenda. And it just goes to show how complicated this has been for the White House to navigate as they both try to get control and a handle on the U.S. southern border while also try to move forward some of their other priorities, and especially for this president, those priorities that are abroad with Ukraine and Israel.
Yeah, it's it's a very complex uh, dynamic, to say the least. There's one thing everybody agrees on, it's that the system is broken. What to do about it, it's not a lot of agreement there. Priscilla Alvarez, thank you, as always. And coming up, stocks are surging, inflation is falling, and more economists are saying a recession is off the table. Will the, conti- will the good news continue in 2024? Will anyone believe it? That's next. Well, if you're into economic indicators, and I most certainly am, there are plenty of reasons for Americans to feel good about the economy as we head into 2024. GDP is growing. Inflation is down. The jobless rate near a 50-year low. Gas prices, they're falling. The stock market, strong, hitting records. And despite the many warnings, we are still very much not in a recession. And yet Americans say they don't feel good about the U.S. economy. Is that going to change in the year ahead. Joining me now to discuss this, CNN Global Economic Analyst Rana Faruhar and our Eva McKend is back with us. Rana, we've talked about this quite often over the course of the last couple of months. And I think the biggest question that I have at this point in time is, if, is this just a, something uh, where the leading indicators, it's more of a tail effect on the people on the ground? <laughs> or are there elements here, and I'm thinking primarily housing costs or kind of the stickiness of, of just lodging in general, where people live on rent as well, that are, that's really driving yeah. the disconnect? So look, I think it's both things. I mean, you know, anybody who has been filling their car, going to the grocery store, paying a mortgage in the last couple of years has has felt some pain, right? There has been rising inflation. And it's something that we haven't really seen in decades. So there are generations of Americans that just haven't been in a situation like this. And it's been alarming and concerning for a lot of people. Now, that said, inflation has been coming down. So why hasn't Uh, consumer sentiment, voter sentiment, you know, caught up with that good economic news, that tends to be a trailing indicator. So it takes a while. It takes a quarter, two quarters, maybe even a year of good news, particularly after all we've been through, you know, a pandemic, a couple of hot wars, trade tensions, for people to really feel like, okay, things are secure. Uh, I can relax. We're back to normal. And I do think that we're probably going to start getting there in 2024. It's been interesting, Ronald, when you look at, you know, if you look at the uh, consumer surveys, you look at the the Michigan, it, we're seeing, uh, I'm shorthanding here because it's December 26th and the brain is not yeah. quite working as fast as it normally does, but there, there's been it's a only kind the of, day after Christmas, you're good. I know, right? Uh, there, there's been a bump. There's been a, a tangible shift. And my question, I guess, is, is this a one month, two month thing? Or is this the start of a vibe shift, to use the terminology from Econ Twitter, where people who have bad expectations about the year ahead are now sitting there going, all right, maybe I'm starting to feel this a little bit. Yeah, you know, um, folks in the stock markets talk about capitulation, you know, right? Like you wait, you think, ah, oh, should I get in now? Should I get in now? And eventually stocks rise and then you capitulate. I think we are going to see um, some capitulation in the year ahead. I think that uh, as long as you see a pretty robust job market, uh, particularly if we see three rate cuts in the new year, which is what the Fed's been talking about, that's going to lower borrowing costs. That's going to make people feel better about Um, home mortgage rates, I think that you are going to see a better sentiment. Now, that said, I don't want to deny that there's a lot going on in the world right now. You know, I mean, we're, we're, as I say, in the middle of two hot wars, you know, you could see um, more uh, trouble in the Middle East, a a heightening of the situation in Gaza that could, um, you know, raise oil prices, let's say, you could see more supply chain disruptions. And also, even though stocks are really high, and that's great, 
stocks are high, you know, by some measures they're overvalued. So it's possible that you could also see a correction in the new year. And, and that would not be something unexpected or unwarranted. So um, steady as she goes, but don't get ahead of yourselves. And I think in some ways, I think the markets may be getting a little bit ahead of themselves with all the um, excitement at the end of, at the end of this year and, and stocks going up so much. Eva, over to you. When you're on the campaign trail, when you talk to voters, um, what, what are they what are they key on with the economy? I, I assume they're not rolling through, you know, what CPI uh, or or what you know PCE was over, over the course of the last month. Uh, maybe not rolling out the uh, the new GDP numbers. What are they keyed on uh, that kind of determines how they feel about things? So you hear your standard concerns, uh, the price of stuff at the grocery store, um, interest rates right now, if they're interested in, in buying a house. What has always been surprising to me, though, for President Biden and, by extension, Democrats, is that the policies that Democrats champion, the economic policies that they champion, are, uh, by and large, really popular. Yet time and time again, when you poll Americans, mm-hmm on uh, the economy. They re- Democrats really take a beating and Republicans are viewed more favorably. But the child tax credit, for instance, that's an economic policy. That's popular. Raising the federal minimum wage, that's popular. Um, not all Democrats champion this, uh, but certainly many progressives do. A universal basic income. We see a little bit of that here uh, in uh, D.C. So uh, a basic income for uh, low-income folks. You know, somehow Democrats are losing a messaging battle here, and that is something that they perennially uh, have to work on. I think it's um, it's really talking about this in a different way and getting many Americans, especially low income Americans, to understand that, hey, if we have larger majorities, some of the economic issues um, that you would like to see move forward, we could actually advance them. Eva, do you think that messaging alone, like if you pull up the how Americans feel about the economy in the latest CNN poll, 43 percent very worried about uh, the state of the economy in their community, 41 percent somewhat worried, only 16 percent not at all worried. You think that's a, a more a messaging issue than it is a policy issue? Well, it's not not all messaging because yeah. obviously you know, the price of goods during inflation were high. We all saw that when we went to our local grocery store. So it's not all messaging. But I would argue that some of it, yes, it is. Yes, it is, because some of these policies are really, really popular. Um, Some of these policies that Republicans don't champion. And yet, uh, Democrats continue to take a beating. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating moment, and it's going to be a fascinating year ahead. Also, how do you account for people just not feeling great after the last couple of years everybody's been through is a huge question uh ron appreciate you as always eva thanks so much uh for the on the ground expertise thank you guys and coming up applying to college is hard enough but now students are struggling to navigate the process after affirmative action was gutted by the supreme court we're going to bring you the real life consequences of that blockbuster decision that's next Well, it can be easy to forget when we talk about the politics, that that the decisions, the policies made in Washington can have huge ramifications outside of D.C. For instance, the Supreme Court's ruling this year that struck down affirmative action in college admissions. High school students wading into the college admissions process just months later are grappling with how and how much to talk about race on their applications. CNN's Gabe Cohen is looking into this. He joins me now. Gabe, what have you been finding? Well, look, Phil, what I found is students are really 
nervously navigating this changing college process, which we know was already fairly mysterious and ambiguous. And these students are, are just trying to figure out what is the right way to talk about race on their applications, which to be clear, is still allowed as they, they paint a picture of their life experience. But as a result of all of this uncertainty, the students I spoke with are taking starkly different approaches. Hi, Brown. My name is Lanija, and I am a black girl in STEM. That's Lanija Russell's application video for Brown University. She's among the millions of students applying to college six months after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions, navigating how and even whether to include race in their pitch for admission. What was your reaction to the decision? At first, I, I was a little scared. I thought it was a bit unfair. It made me doubt myself a little bit, like, are my numbers good enough? You actually took some schools off your list. I, th I felt like getting to those schools were almost impossible. But when she sat down to write her college essays, she decided it was more important than ever to discuss race as part of her life experience. I believe it made me emphasize that I was black a bit more than I probably would have. I started expressing myself more through my photos, my hairstyles. Her main essay is about growing up in a rough part of Baltimore. The thing that's important to me is my identity, who I am as a person, and race is a big part of that. You think schools are still looking for that diversity? Yes. Do not ignore such a crucial part of your identity. College advisors like Tracy Ramos are encouraging black students not to shy away from race in their applications, especially in their essays. It paints a holistic picture of who you are. Do you think without boxes to check, it's even more important to write about these issues? I do. A lot of the elite colleges are looking for ways to identify these students. The key piece of advice is make it easy for the colleges to know all of who you are. Many schools have added questions to their applications so students can discuss their life experience and how they'd add to campus diversity. As a student athlete, vice president of the Black Student Union, and vice president of the National Society of Black Engineers. Sean Manley's essays captured his unique experience as a black student in rural Maryland. I was scared at first that they wouldn't be able to see my race and see all the challenges that come with it. I'm very proud of like who I am, and it's a very important part of why I'm here. Do you think it will put you in a better spot? I don't know if writing it in my essay is good or bad yet because we're kind of like the experiment class. The Supreme Court decision has added a new level of stress to an already stressful college application process for students like Sean and Lanija. Experts expect historically black colleges will see higher enrollment and more applications, and some students are taking a very different approach. You took race out of most of your essays. Yes. Harmony Moore rewrote her essays about being a black student at a mostly white Houston school. Why did you feel that was necessary? I didn't want to have the admissions, wrong admissions officer read it, and then they all of a sudden, like, don't want to let me into their school because they feel like I'm trying to, like, push my race on them. Like, I think I stand out, like, on my own, like, with my extracurriculars and with my honors that I've received. I don't want to just, like, have the exact same story as hundreds of other Black students. And Phil, another student told me she's looking at each college individually and only writing about her racial identity for the schools that she believes are more progressive. Again, it just speaks to the calculations, Phil, that uh, these students are making as they're trying to figure out how to put their best foot forward. Gabe, I have to ask, we heard one of the students uh, you spoke to refer to himself as part of the experiment class. Do experts have any sense of how this may impact acceptance rates? 
Well, look, that's the big question. And there have been concerns for months now that the Supreme Court decision is going to hurt diversity on campuses, in part uh, because of the admissions rates that we've already seen in states that did away with affirmative action years ago. We're still waiting to see how the changes that were made this fall will play out into the admissions numbers for next year. But we know colleges are adjusting and they say they're paying attention to it. All right, Gabe Cohen with the reporting. Thanks so much. And thank you for joining Inside Politics. CNN New Central starts right after the break.